Good morning, church. Happy Palm Sunday. And it is hard to believe we are in April. <clears throat> and uh, thank the Lord for that. They that endure to the end shall see spring. Almost. And that was uh, found in second hesitations. Um, well, it is good to be in the Lord's house. Uh, thank you, Mike, for leading us in praise. What a joy that is uh, to lift up. Love that last song. Just such a gospel, clear gospel message. And um, uh, just uh, encourages you and uh, stirs my heart. I hope it did yours as well. Well, um, is there a Greg Bastion here? Greg and Nancy. It's good to have you guys visiting with us. If <laughs> If you can fill out a visitor's card on your way out, we'll make sure to send somebody by to visit you. Um, as you know, Greg has been serving past six months at Thurman as an interim pastor, helping them as they're looking for a pastor, continue to pray for that church. Uh, and Mark Eaton, as he is filling the pulpit this month for them as they're trying to figure out uh, the next steps for them as the church. Uh, so he hasn't been here in the past six months on Sunday. Uh, and he and Nancy have been a part of our church for the past 10 years. Uh, so that uh, seems like forever, uh, I know. Uh, but this past month, uh, Greg has stepped down from the elder board uh, and also from the church, uh, the church board uh, as, a, as a way of getting his house in order as they prepare to move and make, make that transition coming up in this summer. And we're just so thankful for the way they have served Way, uh, faithfully over the past seven years as an elder and Nancy in many uh, many hats and many capacities so we're thankful for you guys we'll be praying for you they're not saying goodbye so don't say goodbye today uh, they'll be around for a while uh, but it does just remind you to be praying for them over the next few months uh, and he'll continue to uh, to just be plugged in however he can until um, until they move to Michigan right just wanted you to say that out loud in public. <laughs> All right. If you have your Bibles, open them up uh, to the book of John, uh, the gospel according to John chapter number 6. John chapter uh, number 6. <clears throat> and we left off in verse 47 last week. I'm going to pick up verse number 48 and uh, to the end of the chapter. As we consider uh, Jesus' message of the gospel as he preaches himself to a people uh, and as they take offense. So just follow along with me uh, as I read. The Bible says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. Uh, this is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread. That came down from heaven, if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of this world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. 
Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying, and who can listen to it? But Jesus said, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. There are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I, did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon, Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Uh, pray with me one more time, would you? Father, we thank you for this time we gather together this morning. Thank you for your word. And Father, we pray that you would just speak to our hearts and uh, encourage us from your word, instruct us. In Jesus' name, amen. Some of you may have read the New York Times article back in 2021 of a popular theologian, well-known theologian's son who had gained quite a following on social media, uh, some 900,000 followers, and I assume that's a lot as far as social media platforms goes. Uh, and his... Um, his platform was simply a, a place to rant about the uh, about the fundamentalist movement and the absurdity of the Christian faith. In fact, one ex-evangelist, and I did not know that they had a, a term for themselves, someone who used to be evangelical, I refer to as ex-evangelist, who herself had walked away from the faith and began teaching about all sorts of things, secular movements and instructing people who were like her, made this statement in the article, said his videos give many people hope. Another movement along those lines we refer to as deconstructionists, and I don't know if you've heard about that or seen that, who claim they have not rejected God, not outright, but they have rejected certainty in any form of doctrinal beliefs. So instead of assertions, which the Christian faith is filled with, they just step back and says, who can know? Uh, but let's have fun while we try to figure stuff out. Uh, the founders of a podcast bearing that name uh, said it is about growing in your faith and not out of it. But the challenge is, 
um, that it leads you in many directions and none of them lead you to any affirmation in the Bible. In fact, it seems the only sin in these kind of movements is uh, described by him worshiping the golden calf of certainty. And we need to get back to a place to learn to embrace the God of divine mystery. Going back to this idea, who can know uh, anything certain about God or about truth or life or any of those things? It is not new as we see people walking away from the gospel, walking away from what they learn as a child. Many of you have children that have expressed and followed in suit with that. People have always walked away from, from God and turned to some other God or turned to no God at all or some distortion of God, some form of universalism. And the possibilities that people turn to are, are endless. Even in this present text, we see people sitting under the preaching of Jesus himself who are enraged at the very things that he says. Not only are they enraged in verse number 52, some, even those who have said they have committed themselves to Christ in some way, at least to be generally called a disciple, will walk away. And, and if that is not enough, one among the twelve closest people following Jesus will betray him in such a scandalous way that is unthinkable and, 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 and hard to wrap your, your, your thoughts around that he would betray him and, and, and bring about the death of the very one he's been following these three and a half years. Others, Many reasons people walk away, we might guess, answering the question, what exactly are they walking away from? Uh, the answers to that, likewise, is endless. Some people walk away from the church. They don't like uh, formal structures and, and all the things that the church represents, institutions. Others are walking away from what they considered parents, strict rules and guidelines. I just don't want to live under that kind of authority any longer. Yet many in these good-hearted uh, good ideas that they will say they're walking away from hypocrisy because the church is filled with it. Maybe you've even heard that yourselves. Truly in our day where the social media presents the news bold and it, it connects us all over the globe, which in itself is overwhelming, and we've seen the Me Too movement and everything else, it has exposed not just hypocrisy, but rampant abuse under the name of Christianity. Others are walking away from church dogma and the, uh, and, and the, the binding which that seems to have on them. The notion of God, and the list goes on and on, myths and whatever else that they can think of. People walk away from the Christian faith because of pain and the promise of suffering and so on it goes. And it's true that some of the things I just mentioned are to be rejected. Abuse and scandal and hypocrisy and all those things like that. Legalism are to be rejected and set aside, but what you find in the rear view mirror as you walk away from the notion of Christianity is not the baggage necessarily that is the fundamental problem. What you find in the rear view mirror is Christ himself. 
They may claim they walk away from certain ideas into enlightenment, but they have actually, what the Bible says, light has come into the world and they they go towards darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. And what they see is they're walking away from the light and the mirror is Christ and all of the blessings and hopes and gifts that he offers. Just like the disciples in our text in verse number 66, what they walk away from is far greater than what they could ever imagine. And I assure you that even now, wherever, um, even now, those there are well aware of the weight and the cost of what it says there in verse number 66. Well, I want us to consider this morning just exactly what Jesus is offering to these people, what he offers to us We'll begin there. If you're taking notes, that would be my first heading, and that is the offer of Jesus uh, through this long sermon that we have went over the past three weeks, this being the third sermon on this section. So just a a survey, if I could say it this way and sum it up in, in, um, in a word, maybe two words, that Jesus is offering eternal life. You see that clearly throughout the, this recurring theme of what he has come to provide, what he has come to offer to the world, what he has come to bring, and that is eternal life. Look with me, and we'll just look at these passages for yourself as I read them along. Verse number 27, he says, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you For on him God hath set his seal. Verse 33, For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Verse 37, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Verse 35, I'm sorry. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. What a... Glorious promise that is. Verse number 40. This is the will of my Father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life and I will raise Him up on the last day. Verse number 50 says, This is the bread that has come down from heaven. You remember it is Jesus. He's speaking of Himself. So that one may eat of it and not die. The very purpose of him coming, he's preaching to these people, God has sent me into the world and whoever eats of this gift that God has given will not die. Over and over reaffirming this gift of life, everlasting life. Again in verse 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. Don't you like that passage? Isn't that a great promise that he gives us? And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Verse 54, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. In verse 58, this is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will what? Live forever. We sum up all the difficulty in this sermon and you, you, you deal with all the intricate details and all of what Jesus is teaching, but this reoccurring theme of the message, Jesus Christ has come into the world and through him offers eternal life, everlasting 
life. That's the subject of his sermon. Notably that God is sent in the world for this very reason. We know that in John 3.16, don't we? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth him should not perish but have what? Everlasting life. And here he is speaking to his own people, his country, surrounded by those who have committed themselves to him, his 12 disciples, and he is preaching to them the gift of the Father, God's provision for everlasting life. You see that contrast. You remember that God gave you manna, that miraculous thing that has come down from heaven that has sustained the children of Israel in the wilderness. Verse number 45, your fathers ate manna in the wilderness, but they all died. It was just a natural, it was, it was a supernatural provision, but it was, it was meant to sustain them physically. God is giving you something better than that in me. It will sustain you eternally. There's something about this that we tend to think that people in past generations or in other generations had it so much better because of God's work in certain ways. No doubt the children of Israel thought this and the people of his own day thinking about Moses, give us this bread which, which you're promising us, give us this bread to eat. They're already told Jesus this. They're looking for manna again, just like the children of Israel in the wilderness. And look how God had provided. How blessed it would have been to be in Moses' day. And yet, they didn't realize the whole story of Moses' day, despite the fact that God had sent them miraculous bread from heaven, none of them entered into the promised land because of their unbelief. You see, Jesus has come bringing something greater than this bread that was to sustain their bodies. He has come to give them spiritual life. He has come to give them everlasting life. And that is what we come back to when we look at the gospel and we see that great good news that God has given to us, that he promises us life to all who believe. Uh, the gospel presses, presses this issue of life, and we've seen in the texts that we considered, it is not merely just the sustaining of life in this moment, but he, he speaks of it in its eternal significance. Verse number 47, doesn't he? Whoever believes has a kind of life, eternal life, the eternal aspect of what Jesus has come to do. He's not speaking merely of eternal existence. He's speaking of a kind of life, that which is, uh, that which is substantial, that which is, is undying, that which is a reviving of the soul and the spirit, that which is bringing fellowship and unity between one's self and his maker. Jesus reminds us of this when he gives us that statement, doesn't he? What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? And too often our world is so fixated on the moment of gaining the world and never on the reality of the situation of their soul. We know in Ephesians 2, Paul tells us that we're all spiritually dead 
in our trespasses and sin. And this is the issue which Jesus has come to deal with. That is at the heart of the life which he has come to give. Life that is experienced now. Awaken and fellowship with God at this moment. But, but also life and confidence in the age to come. Again, he is not just speaking of us ceasing to be because we will continue on past this life in one state or another. Either we will continue on in the presence of the Lord being welcomed as his child, worshiping him and enjoying the fullness of the Lord, or we will continue to exist eternally separated from God, bearing the weight and the wages of our sin and rebellion against him. And in fact, all of humanity is born in this latter state which Jesus has come to rectify and bring help to. The eternal life Jesus gives is not just hope in the moment to fix one particular problem, but is hope that endures forever and ever. You see it in his promise to his disciples later on in the upper room. I'm going away to prepare a place for you but I'm coming back to get you that where I am, you may be also. That's the kind of life Jesus is offering to those who believe. Well, there's a joy in the life we experience now when we come to Jesus. We'll never hunger or never thirst, verse number 35. But there is an entering into the presence of God without injury on the day of judgment, which Jesus speaks of. And comforts us by. We see that back in verse number 40. I will raise him up in the last day. Could not help but think as I was going through this in my mind. Oh the joy to be right with God. Peace that we experience now. And the precious promises he gives us to sustain us and encourage us of what we have yet to see. And that is a great gift that you and I are desperately in need of. There's not a creed or nation or individual or background or culture that this does not speak to our deepest issues. This is not the, I mean, this is the answer to our greatest trouble. And it is this promise of life and this offer which Jesus gives that really unites us back together. And we'll see more of that next week as we consider Easter Sunday morning. But it is this gift of life. That's what he's offering them over and over. But I want you to notice, secondly, not only the offer of Jesus, but I want you to notice the offense. It seems kind of odd to say that when you think of Jesus giving offense or being offensive. I read an article and said Jesus was offensive to religious leaders and others, you know, kind of people we can be offensive to only when it meant saving someone else's life. And I thought, well, you're halfway right. Because truly the gospel and the message of Christ is offensive to our carnal nature, to every one of us in one way or another. It cuts, it convicts because it goes against us. And our bent, we talked about that somewhat last week. 
But consider for a moment Jesus preaching to a multitude and he is saying that I am God's provision and in me you may have life, not just life, but everlasting life, not just everlasting life, but on the day of resurrection as we stand before the the judgment seat of God, we'll stand being raised up, victorious, forgiven, accepted. That's the kind of offer he's, he's offering these people. And you would think, they would just be jumping up and shouting and raising their hands. It would look a lot like Palm Sunday, wouldn't it? As he rolls into Jerusalem and people's waving palm branches and laying their garments down as he's riding on a a donkey and showing that triumphant entry. I would say that triumphant entry is more expressed in his triumphant entry as he enters back into his disciples' presence from the empty tomb. But nevertheless, he is, he is praised and they're calling out, Hosanna and, and save us now, we beseech you, O Lord. And all these things they're praising. I mean, it is an amazing scene as you study out Palm Sunday, isn't it? Some of you said, why didn't you preach that? Well, I didn't mention it, so there you go. There's a connection. But just a few short days later, the crowd's yelling something else, aren't they? Crucify him. Crucify him. The words Jesus speaks to these people, uh, he speaks to them, and it is offensive. Let me just give you a few reasons why that is, and let me just speak generally first, and we'll look uh, more specifically at what Jesus has said. This is nothing new. As we read this and we discover this, we should be like, yeah, that's kind of the way it is. I see that all around me for the very reason that the Bible itself is offensive. Now, you and I have sat and endured through those presidents coming into office, haven't we? Many of them, some of you more than you'd like to admit. And they place their hand on that Bible. Maybe it was some famous president or some famous figure or mamaw's Bible or whatever it was, and they swear an oath that they are going to fulfill their duties uh, to the best of their ability, and they're going to be whatever it is. We saw that used to be in the court scenes. As you go to court, you would lay your hand on a Bible and swear under oath that you're going to tell the truth, the whole truth, so help you God. We have removed much of that from our society and it is continually being moved more and more. I read an article from LA Times that stated billboards hosting a harvest evangelistic crusade of a person holding a Bible in his lap was offensive and some businesses actually took down the promotions. The writer, Greg Laurie, in an article that he was writing to say, what's so offensive about that old saying, worn out Bibles means your life is put together. Uh, You kind of know it, and I I butchered the saying, I know that, but you get the point of it. So it has now become, in our context, where the Bible itself is is offensive. I, I would say most of the trouble isn't with a book that is closed, though. So people can swear into office all they want with a closed Bible. It is when it gets opened, when it's read out loud, when it's 
declared as being the word of God is when the offense really comes with it. We can swear and put our hand on it and we can do all that we want with it in our culture, but it is when we open it up and and say that this has a bearing on our cultural life and society is when society will not abide with it. It is not allowed in public debate. In fact, we might say this, that we live in a time where any anything is acceptable. A child's opinion is acceptable. But the God of the universe, no. Just having a Bible and claiming it to be the word of God is offensive in our time. Well, the closed book has never been Offensive, the falsely quoted has never been offensive, but it is when we stand and say, this is what God has said, this is authoritative, the world cannot stand it. And you see that increasing more and more, don't you? Not just in America and in the West, all across the globe, the word of God has continually shown to be, as far as man's concerned, out of date, mythological, and hateful. So there is the issue of God's word, which is offensive in itself. But secondly, we, we saw even last week, and I don't want to harper on it too much, but we saw the offensiveness of Jesus' words. If you're seeking to save yourself, then, then it's impossible. In fact, this, this crowd's notion of what can we do to do the works of God, as he mentions earlier on uh, in verse number 30, in earlier, verse number 28, what must we do to be doing the works of God uh, is answered for us. In 29, there is no works other than believe in the one who has sinned. Then he goes on and tells us later on that no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. There is an inability when it comes to uh, to this matter of everlasting life. We need divine intervention. That in itself is a hindrance in the world and offense in the world that we live in. When we are told that the greatest thing that we can do is express our own feelings and press against generation and tradition and all the other authorities that kind of lord over us, salvation in our current culture is simply finding authenticity above every boundary and barrier that stands in your way. Find the true you. And yet the Bible says finding the true you will still leave you helpless and damned. You need something more than that. And those of you with children and grandchildren and I love having kids and they're growing up and we because we can watch cartoons and you don't look at me funny because I have to spend quality time with my kids. But every one of them has the same theme. Overbearing parents and their traditionalism and their idea and the kids' rebellion to find the true expression of who they are despite any outside, any outside pressure or any outside conformity. You see, Jesus' word is offensive not just to the culture in our day, but the culture in his day that you think you have life in Moses, 
Moses is pointing to me. He said that earlier. We looked at uh, in the previous chapter. And now he comes and says, it is completely impossible to come to me unless the Father draws you. But notice he continues that and adds on that the offense of himself. So we looked at the offense of the word of God. We see the offense of sinful uh, and man's inability and his sinfulness. But thirdly, the offense of himself. Verse 51, notice it. He says, I am the living bread that's come down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Now, those of you who have been in church for a long time that have followed, been following Jesus, at, at those words, you might just say a hearty amen. Praise God for that gracious gift. But if you, like the people in the context here, had Moses on such a high pedestal to where there's hardly any equal, then you must think this guy's crazy. He had already said that there's something greater in himself than Moses. Moses give you this, but I'm giving you something greater, something more lasting, what Moses Gave you, in fact, Moses didn't even give it to you. My father gave it to you. And then he, then he gives this whole list of ideas. And he's bringing these people back that, that what he has come to offer them, what he has come to give them is much greater than Moses. And you notice this back. Look at the verse with me in verse number 46. Now, some of you remember in the book of Exodus, Moses was interceding for the children of Israel. And in this great lowness of his ministry, a, a desperate state, Moses cries out to God in boldness, show me your glory. You remember that, don't you? And it's in the 30s, Exodus 30, 32, 33, 34 in that section. And God says, nobody can look upon my face and live. As honored as you are, Moses, we got barriers. It's for your good. There's a place by me. I'll, I'll, I'll shelter you in the rock and I'll... I'll let my goodness pass before you, but he could not look upon the face of God. Notice verse number 46. And 40, 45 and 46 is written in the prophets and they will be taught by God. Everyone has heard and learned the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except, that's an important word. No one can look on my face and live, Moses. There's nobody like Moses. But there is one who has seen the face of the Father. He who is from God, he has seen the Father. You remember how John opens up this dialogue, doesn't he? This whole letter, and he says that the word, the divine word was face to face with God. He is not just a provision of life. He is God incarnate. There is no one like him. I know we strive to be like him. and We strive to do as he did. But at the end of the day, let's be honest, none of us, none of us are him. There's no one like him. And because of his uniqueness of his person, because of his greatness, we are troubled by him. In fact, the multitude, Israel as a nation collectively, at least in part, when they're offered the opportunity of a righteous man who had never sinned and did good, healing their sick, or a thief and a murderer, who do you think they choose? 
Because deep down, righteousness and holiness troubles us. But not just because of his greatness and his uniqueness, but because of the, the narrowness of what he's saying. Notice again, verse 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, me will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Jesus tells us later on that he is the way, the truth, and the life, doesn't he? Looking to people who have put a lot of stock in their work and their effort and in ritualism, he says to them that you will not have life apart from me. And he's saying the same thing in our culture, saying the same thing to us. There is no other place where we might find this everlasting life. There is no other means of reconciliation with our maker. I was reading an article this week about someone asking the question, what do you do when other people are more of a universalist, all roads lead to heaven kind of thinking? And the writer, I thought was, it was just interesting how he said it. He says, should we not at least be amazed that there is a way? Shouldn't that just take us back? That God has provided any way to himself, a, a people that has been actively rebellious against him and out of his love he has provided a way to us. Now you may not like the fact that he hasn't provided ten ways, but the truth is he has provided a way. Every other attempt, every other religion, every other uh, pursuit is a pursuit of kind of making your own path to God. And at the end of the day, it falls desperately. And, and yet what we see here in the gospel message, in the word of God, and what Jesus is telling to these people, that God has given this way to you through me. It's not found in any other way. That's true for us. That if we should have life and we should experience the blessings that he has come to offer, we'll only experience them through him. And that is a terrible thing to say out loud in our culture. From a world's perspective, they see it as arrogant. Let me just ask you this. If it's true, which I believe it is, isn't it the most loving Thing you could say to someone? Isn't it the most loving thing that he could say to them, even if that thing that he says is offensive to their senses, that God has provided a way in me, and that those who come to me, those who believe in me, will have everlasting life? I would say not only is it he offensive in the fact that he is Narrow, he is the only way, but he's offensive in the sense that uh, to receive this everlasting life is to receive him fully. We have made the Bible one of those kind of ATM slots and God kind of one of those gods where if we do a right certain things, then we get what we want. We go on about our way until we get what, get in need again. Then we go back and do the same process. Jesus is using language here, which is very hard. It's offensive in itself when he says, not only will you have to believe in me, as he mentions earlier, but you'll have to eat my flesh. Now you're sitting there listening to Jesus preach a sermon on eat my flesh and drink my blood. How would you take it? 
You'd be looking at your buddy over there and saying, what in the world is he talking about? In fact, that's what you see in verse number 52. They meet his statement with anger among themselves. There's a sharp dispute. They're, They're fighting among themselves saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Now, at this point, you think Jesus is going to back up and kind of explain himself in a simpler form. Okay, you didn't get to eat my flesh part. Well, let me, let me go back and use something else. But he doesn't, does he? Verse number 53, look at it with me. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you will have no life in you. What in, what in the world? Is he trying to lose followers? What is he saying with this? And I think he's bringing us back to, if you think this is offensive, what I am about to do. All that entails, and all that entails following me will be far greater offense than what I'm saying now. Because it isn't what they have in mind when they see the Messiah. What he is pointing them to is the shedding of his blood. He's pointing them to the cross and that his physical body, the life that is found in his blood, all of this will be spent out and offered up on the altar of God on the cross for the sins of many Isaiah 53. And unless you come to that fountain, unless you embrace that work, then you will have no life. Eating has that sense of coming to be acquainted with and to receive and find life and fellowship in. We know the Bible says, Paul says, that the preaching of the cross is what? Foolishness. It's foolishness to the world that we live in. Oh, but to those who are being saved, it is what? The power of God unto salvation to those who believe. Jesus points them to this reality. To a Jewish person, they would not even think about eating meat with blood in it. Some of you like your steaks that way. Just keep it moving on the plate, dodging your fork. My mom... She uh, she likes hers well done. I mean, well, she's a believer in the Bible, you know. She wants to hear well done, and so she says she repeats it every time she goes to order steak. I hope she doesn't listen to this. But to the Jewish mind, to eat anything with blood, and let alone drink it, and he's not speaking about communion. He's not speaking about the Lord's Supper. As the Catholic Church is trying to twist and manipulate, and and, and 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 all that kind of stuff. What he is speaking about is the cross, the offense of the cross, and it's still offensive today. It's still a message which runs counter to the thinking of the world that people need to repent of their sins and come and. And embrace Christ, this crucified Lord who died in their place. Especially when we spend so much time in our culture saying, you're good enough in and of yourself. The picture of the cross tells us a different story. And yet you find such confidence and such refreshing visions of this kind of Uh, This kind of embracing and eating in the life of the Apostle Paul when he writes to the Romans, doesn't he? The Greeks, the cross is foolishness. And yet he writes, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God and salvation. 
he stands before kings and judges and rulers, and they said, Paul, you're a madman, crazy. And he keeps giving them his testimony. Jesus brings us back to this is what the gospel is. Now, I want you to notice quickly with me uh, the outcome. We've seen the offer, see the offense. Notice with me quickly the outcome. You find that in verse number 66, much is going on with this, uh, but we'll pick up verse number 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. We noted in verse 52 that the, the Jews, the people of, over the synagogue and leaders there was disputing among themselves the word for uh, very, very hasty kind of um, arguing uh, heated discussion, debating among themselves. And now we see not just those who are on the outside that, that are often enemies of Christ or position themselves as enemies of Christ. We see verse number 60, his disciples hearing this. These are people that's committed to him, at least in some way, saying, I'm following this guy. And notice what they say among themselves. Who can, who can handle this? Verse number 60. This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Eat his flesh, drink his blood, life in him only, and, and, and coming down from the Father and all this other stuff. Who can deal with this? I want to say it's a very sad statement here in both instances with the disciples and with, uh, with the Jews mentioned earlier that they are dealing with the issues among themselves. What do you think it would have been like if they'd have been like the disciples when Jesus taught the parable and they said, Lord, teach us what in the world are you talking about? And yet we find that their own human reasoning and their own, and their own debating among themselves is useless. Jesus even said that the flesh is not helpful and all the words I've spoken to you are spirit and life. Many. Uh, and multitude of them saying that his teaching was too difficult. We are fixated on numbers in our day. I know oftentimes I'm asked, how many people do you have that come to your church? And I, I respond with what month? <laughs> you know, mid-April, 1st of May, not so many. And uh, <laughs> later on, as everyone kind of goes out on vacation, it's a hard question to answer here. But it would be something just to kind of think about what he's saying here. A lot of people, a lot of people listening to Jesus had been attracted to Jesus, made some kind of, some kind of commitment to Jesus at, at dealing with the difficulty of what they're hearing instead of leaning into it, meditating on it, seeking him for, for further clarity. They walk away, they, they depart from him. I think you see that mass exodus, especially among young people in our culture. They, they grow up in church. They have a familiarity with the Bible. They have a familiarity with the things of God. They're, they're taught in, in Sunday school and youth group and all the other places. They come to church over and over. And, and the, since the first time difficulty comes or, or they're pressed against what they believe, they, they slowly and continually, they, they continually keep walking away from it. Bearing up titles that we talk about at the beginning of this, evangelist or whatever else they want to call. 
And so what do you do when you're faced with that? Because there's always a temptation, a gravitational pull to go with the majority, isn't there? It isn't like we're unaffected. We don't wake up one day. You know, I mean, some of you might, and if you do, um, may the Lord help you. I just want to stand on my own out, and I don't care what any else, anybody else believes. I just want to be the oddball in the group. Some of us, we can't help but be the oddball in the group. It is because we want to be. And the temptation of among the 12 disciples, as they see a multitude of people, this thinking that they have, and the, the church is growing, or people are growing, and and all this, and they see a multitude of people just walking away from the faith. You think there may have been something of a temptation to say, you know what, maybe I need to rethink about what I'm doing here. Well, Jesus doesn't leave the question in the air, does he? Verse number 67. And just to say this, Paul tells us this will be the same way in our day and the last times men will not endure sound doctrine. So they'll walk away. Finding teachers will tell them what they want to hear. Verse number 67, so Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go as well? Do you want to go away as well? What are you going to do? Peter and John and Andrew and all all you guys, what are you going to do? What are you going to do when the world forsakes me? What are you going to do when the multitude goes against uh, and walks away and public opinion is difficult and the workplace is contrary to everything you believe, will you go also? Will you go when it gets hard doctrinally? When you wrestle with things like the sovereignty of God and suffering and all the other things like that, is the answer to just quit and lay it all down? Will you go when... When Christ and the gospel and his word is unpopular in our society. Again, no one's afraid of a closed book, but open it up and say, this is what I believe and and see where that leaves you. What will you do with it? How are you going to live? When it's not only unpopular in the world, but it's unpopular with people in your life close to you. What will we do? Will we go when our, our loved ones go away. When our family members are turning their back on the gospel, when our family members are saying this is just crazy, will we go also? Those are questions that lay at us. Not just the apostles here, not just the the 12. It's a question that, that every believer must ask. What will we do when we hear the gospel? Will we receive it as what is being said here in his sermon or will we go away? And some of you young people who have yet to kind of go out and, and, and just kind of get out on your own. And, and what are you going to do when you find out the world isn't like it is at home? What choices will you make? When all of your associates and all of the people that you surround yourself are saying this is just nonsense. Will you go also? But if Jesus is the only way to life, if he is the only one that can give us everlasting life and heal and be that substance of, uh, of fulfilling our deepest need and deepest desire, then what exactly are they going to? What is his disciples turning from and what are they turning to? 
If he is life and in him is life, then the only other solution is they they walk away from that, that gift of life and they embrace death. Isn't that the case? And you have a world of people teasing and tempting and pulling at us saying life is found here and life is found there and meaning is found over here and substance is found over there and significance and purpose and all of this, but it's all found out in a cemetery away from Christ and its fruits, its fruits are death and destruction and despair. And though it may not look like it on the surface, the world's gospel is not good news. The world's gospel is just a remake of that lie. If you follow this, you'll be like God. In which God reminds us, if you follow that, you shall surely die. Will you go also? When it costs you? When it hurts? What will you do? Let Peter answer that for us. Verse number 68. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, where are we going to go? To whom should we turn to? You have the words of eternal life and we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Oh, dear church, the world may look at us like fools, ignorant, chasing myths, bigots, hateful. There's a sense that the gospel is offensive. We shouldn't try to make it offensive. It's offensive all in itself. You shouldn't strive to be offensive. It's worth saying that. Dear friends, as the gospel claims, or as the world claims all those things, we come back to this reality. What are we going to do? Where would we go? You have the words of eternal life and have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Is that your confidence this morning? Jesus just reminds Peter and the rest of them and even a little rebuke against Judas saying, I know you and I know your divided heart and I chose you. It will manifest later on. We'll see as we go through the gospel. But he says to them, Did not I choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Why is that comforting, that last statement? Or Jesus' response in verse number 70? I think it's comforting because it reminds us of this. All that the Father gives me will come to me And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And again, in verse number 40, everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. To the 12 who makes this bold commitment, makes this bold declaration, there's nowhere to turn. Jesus comforts them and says, and I give to you eternal life. That's the gift he offers to us. That's the gospel. That's why we rejoice, because he came that we might have life, and later on he'll say life more abundantly. Amen? And if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, that is the offer that he gives to us. It does cut against us, cuts against our pride, it cuts against our self-sufficiency, and yet all those things are necessary 
not to be heard in and of itself, but that through that he may heal us and he may restore us unto himself. And I pray that if you've never put your faith and trust in Christ, now is today. Now is the accepted time. Today is the day of salvation. And you can do that right where you're at. You don't have to come to an altar. You can bow your head as we pray in a moment and you say, God, I have sinned against you. But you said in your word here that Jesus is coming to the world that I may have life and I'm looking to him. I'm believing in him. Help me. And I love that. As many as come to me, he will not cast out. Amen? Pray with me. Father, we thank you for this morning that we gather together. Thank you for your goodness to us. Oh, the, to be right with you. It should be our heart's cry, our great delight, because we have found that rightness in Jesus, his gift of life to us. And we, we know the world is at enmity. Our own hearts were at one time. And yet as we live in a world that is enmity against you, we've given that great promise as your people that the gates of hell will not prevail against your work and against your gospel. It is the power of God and the salvation. And Father, just as it worked in your children's hearts here this morning, I pray that it work in the hearts of those here this morning that don't know you, putting their trust in everything else. And Father, I pray for... Uh, pray for us as a church that you would strengthen us, encourage us as we see the, the spiritual warfare in the world intensifying. Remind us of Peter's words, where would we turn to? And give us great comfort in turning uh, to this thought again in Jesus' name. Amen.